Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the History Today podcast for April 25th, 2012. My name's Dean, and I'm the website manager at History Today. In this episode, the origins of Islam. The Quran is an incredibly difficult text to subject to scholarly inquiry for that reason, because you know exactly that you are treading on people's toes very badly. Tom Holland examines whether the light of scholarly inquiry that has illuminated our understanding of the Jewish and Christian past can do the same for the early history of Islam. The cover story in the May 2012 issue of History Today is by Tom Holland, whose new book, In the Shadow of the Sword, The Battle for Global Empire and the End of the Ancient World, was recently published. He talks to History Today editor Paul Lay. Well, when I began the book, um, I didn't just want to write about the origins of the Arab Empire and of Islam. I wanted to write about the fall of the Roman Empire in the East, because um, there's been a lot of um, scholarly attention on the fall of the Roman Empire in the West um, and there's a consensus built about how um, there was internal crises within the empire but also a process of state building on the borders of um, the Roman frontier um, which was precipitated really by Roman power and saw tribes grow larger, more powerful, become more ideologically informed by Roman influences and so I began the project by wanting to explore the issue of to what extent did this paradigm also work in the East. Um, and so that was essentially the premise for it, was that I wanted to place the context of the Arab Empire in that of the empires that it conquered and toppled. And it's there are allusions there, I think, throughout it, to Gibbon, which is the famous works of Horus, yeah. fall and decline of the Roman Empire. It's, can you tell us there how you went about researching it? Because this is fairly new ground, as you say, in the West. Um, what sources did you use there um, for, for coming from the East? Well, it's, it's the measure of my naivety about, um, about Islamic studies, that when I, be I began it, I had assumed that there would be a great quantity of contemporary Muslim sources, because I had read biographies of Muhammad, which went into incredible detail. And so I had thought that they would be the equivalent of Cicero's letters or something like that. So it came as a bit of a blow to realise that, in fact, the earliest Muslim sources we have for the life of Muhammad are almost 200 years after his lifetime. Um, and it opened up really an entire vista of academic controversy. I hadn't realised that there was this sort of 
battle, that titanic battle going on in scholarly circles about the degree to which the Islamic sources can be trusted. And if you can't trust them, what might actually happen? Where Islam might actually have come from? And it was incredibly exciting because it was... Um, the coming of Islam is one of the most decisive events in world history. And to realise that something so significant was a subject of such live academic debate was it was, was you know, absolutely wonderful to realise that people hadn't really written about it. It was like sort of discovering virgin territory. But at the same time, of course, it was slightly sobering because, first of all, you are dealing with incredibly complicated range of material, source material, um, evidential uh, studies but also, of course, there are certain religious sensitivities because um, you are studying the origins of a faith that is very widely practised to this day. And you write in the current um, edition of History Today about the problem with what we think of in the West, certainly as far as Judaism and Christianity is concerned, this scientific inquiry into the word of God, into scripture, is now pretty much accepted. It's, because It's not controversial. Yes, because it. I think it grows out of the biblical tradition. In Certainly, um, for, for, for the Jewish scholars, the, the, the process of, of, of subjecting their holy texts to historical analysis goes back a very long way. And for Christians, it's always been very important to compare the, the New to the Old Testament, um, you are faced, for instance, with four canonical Gospels. They likewise all have to be sifted and compared. And so really the traditions of textual inquiry that were then implied to um, classical texts as well and ultimately to the whole range of historical documentation, I think grows up very organically out of Christian traditions. And so you could say that the modern tradition of sceptical inquiry, of which Gibbon ironically was a standard bearer, is one of those classic examples where... The Enlightenment is descended from Christian traditions, even as it's turning on those Christian traditions. And the implication of that, of course, when you're studying early Islam, is that the methods that you are imply, applying are bound to seem dislocating to Muslims in a way, perhaps, that applying them to Christian texts wouldn't to Christians. And, of course, a fundamental difference there in terms of Christian scripture and the Quran is that Christian scripture is translated into other languages, which become acceptable within those terms. One thinks of Luther, yes. one thinks of Cranmer, one thinks of the Coverdale, various Tyndale. We've been absolutely crucial just to talk about German and English uh, Bibles there. Um, we're used to that idea of examining and changing and shifting interpretations. But, but I think it's even profounder than that, because the Quran is to Muslims what Christ is to Christians. It's the intrusion of the divine into the earthly. And so, in a way, it is as offensive to a Muslim to subject the Quran to um, scholarly inquiry and to presuppose that it may not be of divine origin as it would be to a Christian to sort of go roofling round in tombs outside Jerusalem looking for, looking for skeletons of someone with holes in their hands and feet. Mm. Um, I mean, it is, it is... The Quran is an incredibly difficult text to subject to scholarly inquiry for that reason because you know exactly that you are treading on people's toes very badly and there is uh, on my reading of the book again I, I see this gradation of awesomeness within these religions between Judaism which then develops a Christian aspect and then develops this 
Islamic aspect, which they seem to increase in their aspects of awesome. Of well, the I, think, awesome. I think the understanding of the divine becomes more and more terrifying. I think that's probably true. Um, I think that, that in, in, in Christianity, in a way, that the whole debate about the relationship of the father and the son, for instance, implies that in some obscure way, and I don't want to sink into heresy here, but in some obscure the way, the crucifixion, the fact that Christ offers his life up, um, implies a degree of contract between God and humanity. There's no such thing in, in, in the Quran. And God in the Quran, we're told, if he wanted to, he could obliterate humanity in the blinking of an eye. And indeed, there is no recognisable form for that. Even it's not even imaginable in that sense. No, it's a representation. In a, I mean, in a way, it is. It is a sort of a monotheism that is far more austere and stark and totalising than than Christianity with its debates about the Trinity. And so we're dealing there with what you call, in terms of, if we take this back to the idea of scientific inquiry. What you're talking about is the barest of shreds. And yet you also are indebted, um, and, and very open about this to scholars who have trodden this path before, um, in particular Patricia Crone. Um, and I wondered if you could tell us something about where this, uh, where this scholarship in the West um, towards the Quran and towards well, the Islam, it, it, uh, it grows out of the 19th century traditions of biblical inquiry and at the end of the 19th century scholars start applying it to the hadiths which are the sayings of the prophet which constitute basically the body of of the sunnah um islamic law uh and what they wanted to know was are these sayings of muhammad actually sayings of muhammad and over the course of the 20th century scholars increasingly came to the conclusion that they weren't and this is sort of it's a bit like tugging on the, the thread of a tapestry and the whole thing starts to unravel because the, the, the proofs that had been paraded by Islamic scholars to demonstrate that these sayings of Muhammad were indeed sayings of Muhammad um, had also been applied to all the other paraphernalia of, of Islamic law and history. And what that then meant was that it started to affect the credibility of the biographies of Muhammad or the histories of the early Arab conquests. And once that happened and scholars started looking at this source material and saying, well, it's actually very late, um, you know, generations after the time of Muhammad and an awful lot has happened. A great empire has been conquered, a great religion has emerged. Is it likely that people who are writing about Muhammad in the early ninth century are really going to be interested in exploring what life might actually have been like in the early 7th century. And they've increasingly come to the conclusion that they don't. And it really began, as you said, with Patricia Crone and, and David Cook, who wrote a notorious book called Hagarism in the mid-70s. Um, and that was really a sort of jeu d'esprit. It, it was a sort of um, a firework blaze that they lit at the beginning of their careers, really, just to, just to see what the effect would be. And they have withdrawn from many of the suppositions that they came up with then. But what they haven't done is withdraw from the implications of their broader take, which is that ultimately, to explain the beginnings of Islam, you have to do it in the context of late antiquity, of the world in which Islam was born. And that ultimately um, is what lies behind, I think, a, a, an increasing schism in the field of Islamic studies between those of which there are still plenty who are content to 
respect the paradigm that has been given to historians by um, the great Arab scholars of the 9th and 10th centuries and those who essentially have put them to one side and are trying to explain the beginnings of Islam in the context of late antiquity. And I have very much sided with the latter because it seems to me much more plausible mm. that, that, that the origins of Islam are to be explained in the context in which it em emerges. And of course you're very open about this, that you're not a Muslim, that this is, this is available to you. Well, coming, yeah. from that, coming from that, uh, what we call you know, Christian, then Enlightenment tradition. Well, I think, I think that that's very important to emphasise mm -hmm. that, because at the heart of the, of the issue there is a puzzle, and the puzzle really is the Quran, because the traditional Muslim account says that this extraordinary text, which is shot through with references to biblical monotheism, emerges in a context that had no history of biblical monotheism. Mecca is a pagan city, it's in the depths of a desert, there are no Jewish or Christian communities there, and Muhammad, according to tradition, although interestingly not according to the Quran itself, is an illiterate. And if that is the case, if, if what Muslim tradition tells us about Mecca, the place where Muhammad grew up and where he received the first revelations, then of course his receipt of these revelations can only be explained as a miracle. And if you are a Muslim, if you can believe that Muhammad is indeed a prophet of God, then there is no problem with that. You can, of course, put your trust in the traditional story. But if you're not a Muslim, and if you are interested in explaining the Quran not as a work of God, but as something that is shot through with late antique influences, not just the influences of biblical monotheism, but there are records of Roman propaganda, of Christian miracle stories, of Coptic gospels that have vanished, maybe even of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Then you face the challenge of saying, well, where do these come from? And if you're faced with that challenge, then it seems to me that you cannot possibly rely on the Muslim tradition because by nature it is insisting that the origins of the Quran is a miracle. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that um, a lot of the publicity around this book, a lot of the reviews have, have emphasised that pr provocative nature of it um, in that sense, which, which it can't be anything but um, in investigating this territory. But in many ways, when I look at it, I'm making the point that you go back of, of seeing these roots of Judaism, of Christianity, of, of um, Islam uh, shared in many ways. Yes. You, you paint, you draw very explicitly a line from Virgil, for example, right through uh, the Quran to Islam in, in the widest sense. That actually we can see it almost as a kind of healing, unifying process, that it's there all of one nature. Well, it's it's... It's the nature of history, of course, that it gets categorised and you have dividing lines and you have fields of study that tend not to intrude on one another. And the dividing line between antiquity in the Near East and the Islamic world is very, very, it's like a Berlin, you know, it's like the Iron Curtain. Um, but the issue really is whether that, that, that makes sense. Does it make sense to see the coming of Islam as a complete break, as a guillotine that's being dropped on the neck of everything that had gone before? Or does it make more sense to see the construction of Islam, the construction of the Arab Empire, as an expression of trends that all had also, for instance, seen the construction of a Zoroastrian church and a Persian empire in the Sassanid realms, or had seen the construction of a Roman would-be universalizing empire and a Christian church in the West. And it seems to me that, that actually it makes much more sense to see Islam not as a unique phenomenon 
that emerges like a lightning strike from clear blue sky coming out of the deserts, but as part of a continuum that includes rabbinical Judaism, imperial Christianity and imperial Zoroastrianism. And interestingly, you, you know, you mentioned Gibbon, and although Gibbon doesn't question the truth of the Muslim sources, he repeats the the, the, the canonical Muslim account of, of, of the life of Muhammad and the beginnings of the Arab conquests. Nevertheless, what's interesting and, and, and I think in, incredibly stimulating about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is the fact that within that book, Islam is very much placed within the context of the grand sweep of late antique and early medieval history. And that seems to me it must be right. Mm. And in a way, you know, Gibbon got got to the perspective that is becoming common now in the 21st century, you know, 250, 300 years before. And indeed, as you've written recently in History Today, um, Gibbon, and with the return of religion, the, the importance of religion now relative to, say, 10, certainly 20 years yeah. ago, um, he's become more relevant. I, I, absolutely. Um, although uh, in writing this book, I did my level best to avoid emulating his <laughs> tendency to sneer at religion. Yeah, I mean, it's not a sneering book in any no, way. No, it's not, it? and I it's mean, actually infused not. with an incredible admiration mm. for the achievements of, of monothe what I would call the monotheistic revolution, rather grandly. Um, I, I have no doubt that the achievements um, deserve to be recognised, and one of the reasons that they're not is because we have sublimated them so completely, we take them so completely for granted. Mm. You know, but this is, of course, a, a world of conquest and violence and savagery and cruelty and all this kind of superstition that Gibbon, in his Enlightenment tone, mocked. But it is also a world that sees orphanages and hospitals and a belief that all humans are essentially created equal. This is where those notions come from. So in a sense, this is the seedbed of presumptions that even the most atheistic secularist would subscribe to. Yeah, and it is when we've used the word, well, I've used the word awesome quite a lot at the moment, but that is one of the senses that you really do get of it, that what an extraordinary achievement yes. is Islam, I, I, the, the, the early conquest of Islam and the cultural... Well, the emergence of Islam, I think, you know, I, I think that the, 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 the parallel is, is between the construction of Christendom in Western Europe and the caliphate in the east uh, and the context for both is a period of horrendous horrendous and crunching change the middle east in this period is ravaged by plague by war by sectarianism by savagery and brutality and in a sense the the project that emerges as islam is an attempt to establish frameworks of law and behavior that can provide security for people that have not had them for a very long time um, and it comes in two streams. There's the imperial tradition, and the grand tradition of Constantine and Justinian, which is inherited by Abdul Malik, the great Umayyad Caliph, who builds the Dome of the Rock. And I see really as sort of the St. Paul and Constantine of, of Islam rolled into one. And what do you um, mean by that, Tom? Well, what I mean by that is that, is that um, Abdul Malik is the man who, who takes what are an inchoate blur of traditions and prophecies and revelations and through the sheer muscled power that he possesses shapes and molds it into a religion 
So it's as though St. Paul had been a Roman emperor and had had, you know, had been able to fashion a Christianity using architects and, and soldiers. Um, and Abdul Malik ruled, you know, he is the caliphate Allah, he is the deputy of God. And he sees himself as being not a whit inferior to Muhammad in status. His role is just as significant. He is the intermediary between God and the mass of humanity. But what's fascinating is that just as um, the austerities and asceticism of the monks and the hermits in the Christian Roman Empire had, in a sense, served to undermine the pretensions of the Caesars, so likewise in, in, in the emerging world of Islam, it's... It's the conquered and the defeated and the descendants of slaves and prisoners of war who get together and start looking at the revelations of Muhammad. And in those revelations, they read that it is essential that um, the mighty and the proud and the rich and the greedy, owe it, they owe a due to the poor. And these people start turning around and saying, well, how about it? Why are, you, why, why are you Arab conquerors? Why are you treating us like dirt? And they start fashioning a new model of Islam, which will emerge as the Sunnah, a framework of law, which ultimately will prove more powerful than the pretensions of the Caliph, to the degree that, that, that in the end the Caliphate goes, but Islam remains. But the, the difficulty is, from the point of view of the historian trying to make sense of this, is that Although there are clearly Zoroastrian and Christian and Jewish influences and maybe even influences from further afield feeding into this project of the construction of the Sunnah, the validation that these scholars are looking for can only come from Muhammad. So they can only pass something off as divinely sanctioned if they locate it back in the lifetime of Muhammad in the depths of the desert. And so as a result, they cannot acknowledge the scale and the originality of what they're doing. And similarly, Muslims now cannot acknowledge it because they have, you know, if they're Sunni Muslims, they have to say that this comes from Muhammad or else it's delegitimized. But I hope that one of the things that, that certainly non-Muslim readers and maybe even Muslim readers too of the book will, will take from it is a sense of admiration at the sheer scale of this project, which, as I said, I think is, is comparable to the scale of, um, of what was achieved by Christian civilization in, in, in the equally and maybe even more devastated former provinces of the Western Empire. And is the divide between the practice of history, as we know it in the West and has developed since Ranker and Gibbon and everyone else, which we practice today, can that ever come to terms with the religious aspects of Islam in the way that perhaps you can be a practicing Christian and a historian, a practicing Jew and a historian? Well, that, that's, not for, me to, that's not for me difficult. to say because I'm not a Muslim. I, I mean, I would have thought that the one thing that I felt very clearly when I was writing this book was that if God exists, then he was doing, he was getting up to an awful lot <laughs> at least in this period. And I would have thought that that it would, I mean, I don't know. I would have thought that it would be possible if it becomes accepted that there are elements within the Quran that, that, are, that are much older, that derive from sort of, you know, that it's a, a lake into which various streams are fed. You wouldn't have to explain that in purely secular terms. I would have thought that you could say, well, God you know, is infinite. He could do anything he likes. Maybe that's the way he's manifesting himself. That Maybe that's the way that the revelations come to Muhammad. I don't, but but I'm, not a, yeah. I'm not a Muslim, so it's not for me to say that. That's a, that's a project we must leave to Muslims. 
Yes, of course. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks, Tom. That's really fascinating. And um, Tom's piece on the origins of Islam is our cover story. And his book, In the Shadow of the Sword, is out now. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this edition. A thanks to Tom Holland for his time. You can read Tom's article in the May edition of History Today, which is out now. Also in the May issue, Richard Jones on the Luddite movement, Claudia Baldoli on the bombing of Rome in 1943, Nigel Jones on why referendums appeal to both dictators and Democrats alike, and David Coke on how the artist William Hogarth helped ensure the lasting success of London's pleasure gardens. You can also listen to previous editions of the podcast and comment on anything you've heard today by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.